Well, I am uh, very excited about this because I thought I, I thought I knew everything about the space program until I spent a great deal of uh, the summer so far enjoying, and I want to emphasize, enjoying reading the Astronaut Wives Club. And it's, uh, it's just terrific that Lily Koppel, New York Times bestselling author and the author of this wonderful book, has some time to join us today, Suzanne. And I know that you've actually lived some of the experience of the uh, the original seven. Yes, I did. Being a kid growing up in the White House and stuff. And uh, let's invite Lily to the show because I can't wait and we can't wait to ask a million questions. Lily Koppel, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Of course, when, when we talk about the astronauts, uh, astronauts' wives, we are talking about the Mercury 7. Can you tell us a little bit about who this group is, Lily? Sure. Well, for me, really, um, they're, in a way, our first reality stars, I think. This is a group of seven women married to astronauts, um, Gus Grissom, Alan Shepard, John Glenn, names that we're all familiar with, and hopefully some of the younger generation is, as well as the wives and astronauts would probably chide. Um, but these were unknown military wives who are living on sort of drab military bases when their husbands were announced as Mercury 7 astronauts on April 9, 1959. And as a surprise to the whole country and NASA and the White House, um, there was this immediate attention um, given to not only why have you volunteered to be thrust into space, you know, um, being posed to uh, the astronauts, but what does your wife think about this? She's going to let you sort of be catapulted where no other man has gone before. And so all of a sudden the country um, met Annie Glenn, Betty Grissom, Reen Carpenter, Trudy Cooper, um, and these were all women who were sort of presented as picture-perfect model 1950s housewives, um, but as the book reveals, and I learned on a personal basis, they were all very different, diverse women. Because like, t- at the time, Life magazine, uh, Look magazine, you know, were portraying them as exactly that, though. Absolutely. Well, Life magazine bought the rights to their exclusive stories in 59 for half a million dollars, which to these test pilot wives was almost like winning the lottery. But but Um, they all had to share it, right? They all had to share it, absolutely. Um, But, you know, they had been living on rather dismal salaries, and all of a sudden were each given, um, each of the families was given about $70,000 to split throughout the Mercury program. And they really sort of needed it as well as they were being, their lives are being turned inside out. All of a sudden, they're going to tea with Jackie Kennedy. They need clothes to wear. Um, but it was all part of the learning curve of what it meant to be an astronaut wife. So they, they're painted a lot in Wainwright, to, you know, the, the history and the connection to that name and, and the musical family, the McGarrigals and everything here in Montreal is amazing. Absolutely. But, but like people like Trudy Cooper, they, were, they, they had to be squeaky clean for NASA and everything had to be perfect in a perfect marriage. But t- talk to us about Trudy Cooper, Gordo Cooper's wife, because she's she's arriving with a rather massive secret. Absolutely. Well, all of a sudden, you know, flashlights are being poked into the women's private lives, but there are a lot of things that they want to keep private because um, one of NASA's first credos was, if you don't have a happy marriage, you're not going to have a space flight. Um, Trudy and Gordo Cooper. Trudy was an aviatrix. She was a very adventurous woman. Um, Gordo, before he got picked as a Mercury astronaut, he'd been having a little too much fun on the side, and they were actually separated, and Trudy and her two daughters had moved out. And as soon as Gordo 
felt that he was about to be picked, well, there was a big oversight, which is that he didn't have that happy little wife waiting at home that all the other guys who were going to be picked did. So he um, went out, talked to Trudy, and the Coopers really got together, back together for the sake of the space race. Um, one of the other wives, Marge Slayton, had been previously divorced, which doesn't sound like a huge deal today, but there was no way something like that could be revealed within the NASA culture at the time. Um, a lot of these women who I've become very good friends with, um, paging through their photo albums and scrapbooks at their homes, you know, have looked at photos of them from that time and said, wow, we look like Stepford wives, you know, and sort of <laughs> laugh. But, you know acknowledge that they were so much more. Uh, we're speaking to Lily Koppel. She is the New York Times bestselling author of the book, The Astronaut Wives Club. It's a story of the Mercury 7 uh, astronauts, but about their wives. So, so Lily, let me ask you, so how much weight did the wives have or did they carry in the selection of their husbands into the program? In other words, if the wife didn't cut muster, were the guys then at risk of not being included in the program? Well, for example, Betty Grissom told me about how the FBI came to her small hometown before Gus was picked and started sniffing around at the neighbor's house, you know, and wanted to know um, about the character of his wife, you know, how often did she cook home-cooked meals, you know, what did communists regularly appear at her doorstep? I mean, they wanted to make sure that these guys could be held up as model examples of American manhood with a perfect wife to match because you have to remember this is the height of the cold war and not only was the mission about getting america into space first and beating the soviets but also sort of beaming this model american image and i think any of us if we just think of what nasa represents to us you know it's almost as all american is you know apple pie or baseball and these women had this equally challenging role as their husbands with um, really holding up the whole public relations angle of the program. And women's roles changed throughout the space program. It started in 59, as you pointed out, when they were named. The book goes into not just the original seven, but then as the other astronauts were included in the community developed in Houston. And then women's lib came along, and there was a whole transformation of how women could react, and then how they all mixed together into what eventually becomes this club, as you describe it. And when we continue in the next part of this, we really have to go there, because not only did they deal with the happiness, the glamour, but there was the tragedy that was involved in the deaths of some of these people as well. And I've so enjoyed the book. Uh, beyond being about uh, the, the space program, because you know I love that, and pilots and stuff, but uh, just to get an insight to the Astronaut Wives Club, and not just the original seven, but then as they added into the Mercury program and they needed more astronauts, more families, more wives, Apollo, and uh, and Lily Koppel has given us such a great inside look by talking to some of these women who had to go through as much as, and I was just telling Suzanne, Lily, about the, you know, the first cover photo in, in Life magazine and how the women worked so hard to get dresses they really couldn't afford together and their look and they talked about the pastels and using pink lipstick because it was uh, the new the new color the luck. and they end up changing it to red on the cover because they wanted these women red white and blue right you know that's like their first initiation their first cover shoot for life magazine these seven women have been thrown together and you start seeing this sort of sistership 
emerge. You know, they're all very different. There's Annie Glenn, who's sort of all-American, and really, um, if John Glenn was that perfect Boy Scout astronaut that NASA demanded, his wife Annie fit the bill as well, being his Girl Scout to match. Then you have Betty Grissom, who is more of a country mouse, sort of the the ugly duckling in a way of the wives. You know, they felt she was a little less sophisticated. She didn't want to get her hair done or her makeup done. And then you have Reen Carpenter, who's one of my favorite, who was married to Scott Carpenter, and she was blonde and vivacious. And um, JFK even said found her the most attractive of the wives. I was actually at the White House when Ren Carpenter and John Carpenter made their visit after his trip up. And uh, I was on the front steps. I was wow. I was a kid, and I have a picture of it. Interestingly enough, uh, Kennedy's walking out, and the, the Carpenters are getting into a convertible, and it's on the north side of, of the White House, the portico. And uh, you see me on my tippy toes, you know, trying to get a good look at them, as you know, because to see an astronaut was like the coolest thing in the world, and that actually uh, seeing Kennedy. Uh, you know, close up like that and noticing that he wears makeup. <laughs> and it was that even took sec- that took back seat to the fact that I was I was seeing one of the uh, the astronauts. Absolutely. They were all supermen, Kennedy included. Yeah. Well, Car- and Carpenter and his wife, uh, I mean, if anything, I'm thinking left coast and talking to trees and uh, being very spiritual really didn't fit. And the fact that he was so far off in his landing. I mean, he, they, they paid for that, both of them, he and his wife, dearly, didn't they? They did. He overshot his landing by 250 miles. Um, and Loudon Wainwright actually wrote this profile in Life magazine where he tried to present Scott in a more truthful context um, by sort of um, showing him as more of a beatnik among these other all-American boys, the rest of the Mercury 7 astronauts. Of course, you know, Scott was an all-American boy as well, but he and Reen, um, you know, were opinionated, um, you know, sort of marched to their own drummer, and um, Reen was actually devastated about the article just because she knew within the NASA context it was sort of... um, dangerous not to appear that perfect red, white, and blue. But she herself challenged even the wives model. Um, She was someone who was always comfortable with the press. She had wanted to be an actress as a young woman. And a lot of the wives struggled with giving this post-flight press conference that they always had to step out on their suburban lawn and face the circus that was camped out there. She always told the other wives to say, I'm happy, proud, and thrilled, despite, you know, the, the emotional roller coaster they were going, mm. that was going on inside while their husband was strapped to what was essentially a large stick of dynamite. Uh, how supportive were they of each other, these women, the wives? Were they friends? Did they get along? Were there jealousies because some, you know, got more press than others? Well, absolutely. You know, you're dealing with an incredibly competitive environment. All of their husbands are super alpha males, all competing for the same flights, first to get into space, then to go to the moon, stepping on the moon first. And the wives from the beginning said, if there's any way we're going to survive this new cutthroat NASA world, we're going to have to rely on each other and rise above the competition. But of course, that wasn't always possible. 
um, the Astronaut Wives Club formed in the early 60s, which was a way for the women to support each other through triumph and tragedy. And they had regular coffees and teas and cocktail hours. You know, this is the era of deviled eggs, and they would make moon pie, which would be um, some sort of coconut cream pie swirled with meringue to look like the lunar surface. Um, but oftentimes their deepest fears and um, feelings of loneliness that crept in um, because their husbands were away training during the week and they were sort of being super moms back in the space burbs where all of the astronaut families lived outside of NASA's operations in Houston um, was difficult. And they felt that if they shared their true feelings, even with their best friends and next-door neighbors or fellow wives, if something leaked out and it got back to NASA, um, that could make mean um, their husband not going to the moon. Mm -hmm. So there was also, well, there was this incredibly close-knit community, this sort of bubble world in the space burbs. Um, each woman was sort of on her, on her own tether out to orbit as well. It wasn't until years later when they um, reconnected, actually, at a first reunion that they had at Janet Armstrong's home in the early 1990s that they felt that finally they'd escaped that competition and they could um, just let their emotions flow. It's, well, the, the book the is, is, is filled with how they dealt with uh, their in, the husband's improprieties. Alan Shepard, I mean, the first man into space, had, had a few experiences leading up to all of that that were kept quiet. Uh, but also, and then, and how they dealt with the tragedies uh, outside of the military family now, dealing with a civilian organization like NASA, and how the, why these women did pull together to deal. Because before Gus Grissom and, and the Apollo accident, astronauts died. They died flying the T-38 jets. And the first of those fatalities, the, the wife of that gentleman had to find out from the press, right? Absolutely, yeah. Faith Freeman. Um, it was um, Halloween weekend, 1964, and um, Faith was the wife's name, and she had a little girl also named Faith. They called her Faithy, and she was getting ready to go trick-or-treating, and, you know, the doorbell, you know, um, rang, and she answered the door. I think he was an early trick-or-treater. In fact, it was a reporter asking her about her reaction to the accident, and, you know, she quickly learned um, probably the hardest way possible, that her husband, Ted, had died in his T-38 flying home to be with the family. And unfortunately, she, you know, it wasn't an unusual case because eight astronauts died on the path to the moon. And where these wives may have started out, your typical 1950s housewife, and maybe, you know, their, their lives did revolve around their hero, all of a sudden, you have these women at the same time that women are becoming liberated through the feminist movement across the country, really having to step outside the role of just being a wife and really coming into their own. And um, the wives especially banded together over, over these tragedies that hit the community so hard. There's so much to um, talk about, and I can't. I think I've sold the book to you. Yeah, you have. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. No, well, thank you. Really, it's it was such a great read. Really, Lily Koppel is the author of uh, the New York Times bestselling author of the Astronaut Wives Club. A fascinating stories, fascinating reading. I'm looking forward to to grabbing Rick's book and and delving right into it. Thanks, Lily. Thank you so much. Hope it flies you to the moon. Oh, ah, boom, boom. Thank you, Lily. <laughs>